0: And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is God's word. Let us pray. God, we ask now that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us tonight through your word. May you be glorified and we be sanctified by this proclamation of your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, the title of the sermon is, Peace with God in Every Circumstance. We'll look at three points, as usual. I'm a Baptist, there has to be three points. One, a new reality defined by peace. A new reality defined by peace. Two, the sanctifying work of suffering. And three, the assurance of God's love through it all. So, Number one, a new reality defined by peace. Notice that the text starts off with this phrase. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, uh, the literal rendering of this is having been justified by faith. This text starts with a verb in the passive voice. The passive voice. In other words, you have been justified by faith and that was not a work of your own. That is a work of which you are a passive recipient. You don't justify yourself. It is something that is done for you and to you by God. Justification is an act of God, not an act of yourself. And we we saw that in, in chapters three and four. And so what happens is then you enter then from that reality into a new type of existence, a new reality that is defined by what God has done for you and to you. Right? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Right? If God has justified you, if God has looked at you and said, this one is righteous and this one is mine and this one is my beloved, which is what He does for us in the Gospel, we have peace with God. We enter into this relationship of peace that God himself has initiated. Have you ever had someone that kind of had something against you that you know that they kind of have a beef against you? Maybe you did something wrong to them or maybe they just don't like you and you've tried to like get on their good side and you try to do like tokens of generosity and kindness and you know, show them that, hey, I want to be your friend, right? And maybe you kind of break through and you have some sort of relationship, but you always feel like they're holding something over your head. The relationship is never completely at peace. That is not the relationship you have with God, right? At one time, you were Christian at enmity with God, right? You were at enmity with God, but the justification of His grace eliminates that enmity it makes you right it gives you peace with god and he isn't holding those things against you anymore there's no reason to fear the wrath of god no reason to fear that god is going to turn on you because of something you did in the past or even something that you will do in the future because you have been justified by faith in the passive voice god did it the one who knows the past present and future has justified you, and therefore you enter into a new reality that is defined by this peace of God. And if you know who God is, you know that God is the sovereign creator of all things, right? He's not finicky. He saved you knowing the real you, right? He, therefore, knowing the real you and knowing this world and ordaining all things that come to pass, He saves you into the world that He has created. And He knows what will face you and what things will come to pass. And so you need to interpret your circumstances in light of that. That the same God who justified and saved you is the God who orders every moment of history. Even the difficult moments. Even the difficult moments. I'm a father. And sometimes I give my children difficult things to do. Now, my kids are little and they don't quite understand this, but as we grow up, maybe some of you can relate to this. Maybe your parents had hard things for you to do, and then you didn't quite understand why. But as you grew up, you go, oh, I see what they were doing. They were wanting me to do this difficult thing because it was going to produce something good in me. That it would be better for me to go through this suffering, this trial, because it's good for me. Any of you who have participated in sports know this. You know, the workouts, the practices, they're not fun. Unless you're just weird. But you endure through the suffering and your coach, who loves you, is pushing you into that so that you will be refined. So that you will be shaped and so that you will be better on the other side of that. God is that God. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who is ordaining all things to pass and he is sending all things your way for your good. And everything is to be interpreted from a place of peace. Even God's most difficult providences to you are from a place of peace with God. And that's what Paul wants us to understand here in this passage. So I guess the question that is kind of asked here, and if you haven't been tracking with us for the last couple months, is why would you not be at peace with God? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Well, what do you mean? Like, was there a time when we didn't have peace with God? Well, yes, I alluded to it earlier. Because of our sin, we are made at enmity with God. His wrath is against us in our sin, and we need peace to be made. And that's why Jesus came as propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God and to make peace between God and man. So yes, there is a need to be at peace with God. And so if you're here tonight and and you are not a follower of Christ, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you never been baptized, then maybe you are in need of peace with God. And Jesus is the only way that that peace can be made. So all these things that I'm saying tonight is only true of those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you do not have peace with God. And so therefore, the whole reality changes. So the the need of tonight is, if you're not a follower of Christ, is to be in Christ, who is the only satisfaction um, of God's wrath, so that you would have peace with God. And so it moves on in verse 2, showing us that Grace is a safe place to stand. Grace is a safe place to stand. It says, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Remember, we have been granted access into the grace of God and that place of grace is where we stand. In other words, like it is your, it is your zip code. When you're saved, you're transferred from one zip code to another. You're transferred from a position of of wrath and death and judgment into a place of grace and peace and acceptance. And God did that. And he has given us this place of grace and it is a safe place. There's a lot of talk of safe spaces, safe places. Um, around this today, but truly the grace of God is truly a safe place to stand because grace is the ultimate definer of all your circumstances. Listen to Psalm 31, Psalm 31 verses 3 through 5. The psalmist says, of God, he says, you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God." You see the psalmist here is in the midst of a trial. His enemies are literally coming for his life, trying to destroy him, trying to kill him. And how does the psalmist interpret his situation? Is it in, hey, this is the end of me? Is it self-focus? Is it primarily focused on the enemy? No. It's focused on God. He says, you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. Listen, you lead me and guide me. And where am I at right now? <laughs> I'm in need of a fortress. But he's saying, you lead me and guide me even into this place of conflict. You see that? It's not just that God leads us and guides us when things are good, right? When you get that promotion, right? God is not just leading you then. You know, you see the, the athletes on ESPN after they win the game. Oh, glory to God. But they probably don't say that after like a, their, their, their slump, you know, when they just lost seven games in a row. They probably don't say that. But the psalmist says, yes, you lead me and guide me, even into this place where right now I really need you to be my rock and my fortress because people are trying to kill me. But then he says, you take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You take me out of the net. He ended up in the net, guys. Sometimes you might end up in the net of your enemies. Whether that's literal enemies or the enemy of your sin and your flesh, you may actually end up in the net, but our confidence does not change in the Lord. Hey, I need you to be my rock and my fortress, and you take me out of the net of my enemies. And notice, I skipped this part, but he said you do all this for your name's sake. God does all this for his own glory, as we'll see in a bit. And then it ends with this. It says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. That sounds familiar, right? Anyone know who referenced this text in a moment of trial? Stephen Stephen did, yes. Jesus did from the cross as well. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. I trust my spirit in your hands, Lord. Why? Because you have redeemed me. See, the psalmist, all these years before Christ says, I'm interpreting my situation in light of your redemption. You redeemed me, Lord, and you are faithful. Therefore, though I'm surrounded by my enemies and they've got me in their nets, your redemption is shaping how I interpret my circumstances. And it is a circumstance of grace and deliverance. And that's what you have when you have peace with God. Because the last thing that can be happening is that God is forsaking you right now. That's the last thing that can be happening in your trial. It is God is the God of your redemption and He is faithful. And so because of that, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, this word here um, of boast, rejoice, it shows up multiple times in this passage. commentators will point out that rejoice is kind of a weak translation of the word here. The word boast or glory or triumph is a more literal rendering of the word. So, we don't simply rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we boast in it. We glory in it. We triumph in it. See, this is the best place to put your hope. And, you know, I'm a pastor, and I, I have to tell you that. But it's literally true. It is the best place to put your hope and your confidence is in the glory of God. Why do I say that? Because God will be glorified. You get that? God will be glorified. He will not be thwarted. It is a certain hope. Remember we talked about God who ordains all things. And he's ordaining all things to this end, his own glory. And it is the one thing that he is pursuing on top of everything. Listen to Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel four thirty five says, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? You see God is doing all things and he's completely in control. He is sovereign. Uh, we, we use that word a lot as Christians. We don't use it m- uh, much outside of Christian terminology in sort of pop culture but sovereign is complete control, complete authority to reign as a king and God's kingdom and sovereignty extends to every square inch of you know, human existence as it says on the back of some of your t-shirts, right? And so God is ordaining all these things for the final goal of His own glory. Listen to Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, "...for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." You see. The end of history, the the telos. Y'all know what telos means? It it means the the end, the goal, right? So what is the telos of history? Where is history headed? It's headed towards this reality, that the whole earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, like the waters cover the sea. That's such a great metaphor. Like the waters covering the sea, which literally is everywhere. And so God, the sovereign one who ordains all things, is aiming history at this purpose, his own glory. So when we put our hope in that reality, we will not be put to shame. It is the one certainty of all of history that you can place your hope in. And it says, in this, we rejoice, we boast, we glory, and we triumph. So this means that because of our salvation because we've been justified by faith, God's glory is our glory. Do you get that? God's glory is our glory. I think a a natural illustration of this is uh, football fans after a championship, right? The the football fan glories in the glory of another, right? They go buy all the merch, you know, they, they wear it proudly, they, they walk with a boast and a confidence and a swagger because some other group of people did a really glorious feat that you had absolutely nothing to do with, right? But their glory, Tennessee Volunteers' glory, <laughs> is your glory, right? Because you are sharing and you're boasting in and you're triumphing in their glory. In the same way, that is how it is. God's glory is our glory as followers of Christ. Uh, Paul says in Galatians six fourteen, he says, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said, there's nothing left in this world for me to boast in, but the cross of Jesus Christ. And that is my glory. That is my boast. And guys, this is a key thing when it comes to evangelism. If your primary motivation to evangelize and tell other people about Christ and the gospel is motivated primarily by guilt because you know you should, you're not going to do it. And you're probably not going to be very effective at it. But if your motivation to evangelism is boasting in God's glory, because God's glory is your glory, then you, you're, you're in it. No one had to tell Tennessee fans this weekend to wear their Tennessee merch and tell people about the game, right? Because their glory is in another. Our glory in Christian is in Christ's glory. So we boast and we receive glory and we triumph when we see Christ triumph, when God triumphs, when the kingdom of God goes forth in power and glory. We participate in that and we boast in that. But so often we glory in worldly things. We don't listen to Paul saying there's nothing else in the world that I would boast in other than the cross. We have a whole laundry list of things that we boast in, that we glory in. And these are worldly things. These are lesser things. Things that will ultimately fail us. Yet God in his mercy has designed a way to remove our love of these things. A way to refine our faith a way to refine our affections reorienting our hearts to their proper end and he does this through suffering <clears throat> the only power that the world has over us is our own love of the world you see what what does the enemies of the cross come at god's people with hey we'll take away your job will take away your influence in society, these things that we love. But if your ultimate love and your glory is in that which cannot be taken away, the world has no power over you. And God is intent on getting you to that place where all these lesser things do not captivate your affections and your loves, but God and His glory alone do. Which leads us to the second point, the sanctifying work of suffering verse three it says not only that in other words not only do we rejoice that we have access into god's grace through christ but it goes further but we also rejoice in our suffering they say rejoice in our suffering (laughs) whoa whoa that's too far clint not rejoice in our suffering why don't we just tolerate our suffering no god would have us boast in the cross as well as the crown suffering as well as glory. And because all things are defined by our position in the grace of God, we know that even suffering is a glory in a way. And it is a glory because it makes us more like our glorious savior. And so we see this in verses three through through four, a kind of sanctifying chain reaction we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. You see this chain reaction that happens here. You know, suffering does something to a person that nothing else can do. I remember there's someone in our church that spent some time with an older man and just really impressed at his humility and just his character. And I remember telling Kalen one night, I was like, I want to be like this man. I really want to be like this man, but I really don't want to go through what he had to go through to become that man. But it was only by going through those things that he became this man of great character that we've been blessed by today. And so God does this. We shouldn't be surprised by suffering. First Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, notice that, Beloved. That's not just a churchy word that's in the Bible, Beloved. So in other words, what I'm about to say to you is defined by the fact that you're beloved by God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. (laughs) I love how straightforward Peter is. He was not very nuanced with his words. People are suffering, having fiery trials. He's like, don't be surprised as if something strange was happening to you. Like we might hear that, like if I came to you and like your, your cat just died. And I'm like, don't be surprised it's like something weird's happening to you. You should know. Yeah. But, but that's what Peter says. But he says, But rejoice. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is why suffering is so important for the Christian life, because at the center of Christianity is a suffering Savior. If you take away suffering, you take away Christianity. And suffering helps us to identify with Christ. It helps us to know Christ in a specific way in which he is made known. He came to earth as a man to suffer. And so if we don't suffer, we don't know Christ fully. So Peter says rejoice because you share in Christ's sufferings. But it doesn't just stop there. If you suffer and you rejoice in Christ's sufferings, you will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus himself, he said, blessed are those who suffer for his sake. Happy are those who suffer for my sake. The apostles who were beaten with rods for proclaiming the gospel, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So we talk about this, persecution, martyrdom, these are more obvious ways in which suffering is a glory. Like we can all look at somebody who suffered for what they believed and say, yeah, we see how that is glorifying to God. But what about natural evil? What about sickness? What about car crashes? What about things that aren't spiritual at all? What about suffering from broken relationships. Do these count? Are these glorious sufferings in the same way that suffering for persecution's sake are? I would say the answer to that question is yes, they are. Why? Because all suffering and weakness is the result of the fallenness of this world. It's the result of sin, of the sin in which Christ came to overcome. All suffering and weakness pushes us deeper into our experience of the fallenness of this world and deeper into the hope of glorification. So what do I mean by glorification? We talk about salvation in in sort of three sort of chapters, if you will, in Christian theology. We talk about justification, what we've talked about, which is this legal declaration of righteousness that God makes to you. Then you have sanctification, which is this sort of progressive moral transformation that happens throughout the Christian life. Then we have sort of the final stage of glorification, which is when all sin is taken away, your body is resurrected and restored to, to perfection. This is the end of all history. And so weakness, all suffering and all weakness pushes us further into a hope and a longing for this glorification, right? Um, There's a guy that I met through ham radio, ham radio nerd, Uh, this guy named Wayne who lived up in um, where he lives, Sycamore, Georgia, and uh, his call sign was WD4LYV, and for the last 40 years he has not been able to walk. In fact, he has not been able to move anything but his left hand for about the last 10 years. He he was in bedridden, he had a very rare disease, only a handful of people in the world had this disease, where all of his bones, anytime you injured tissue, it would return, it would calcify. So if you injured, think about that, anytime you just tweak your ankle or anything that basically makes you sore, his body would turn that inflammation into bone. And so he basically became a prisoner in his body. And he laid in the bed 24-7, he could talk, he talked through Clint's jaws like this because he couldn't move his jaws, and he could only move his fingers on his, one of his hands. He died recently. He lived longer than anybody that we know of who's ever had this disease, this Christian man. And the reality that he hasn't walked in 45 years, but now he's freed. That longing for glorification that he knew in that suffering is not something I can relate to. But the suffering pressed him further into the promises of God, right? He desired that glorification in a deeper way because of his suffering. Now he wasn't willing to trade. He told me one night, I wouldn't trade with you. He's like, I don't know how to raise kids. He's like, I wouldn't want to be in your place because I wouldn't know what to do. He says, I know how to lay here in this bed. Um, And he was a great guy. but, But that's the point. This brokenness makes us long for Christ even more. Because every, everything that is broken is being redeemed by Christ. Whether that is your sickness, whether that's your jacked up relationship with your family, <clears throat> all of those things are being redeemed by Christ. And it is then pressing us into this hope that Christ shapes us. I got a brother who's going through, not a real brother, but a Christian brother, who's going through a fiery trial and and he has this illustration that has been helping him through it, this idea that he's being pressed. God is pressing him into a mold and that mold is Christ. So God pushes us into this hope and it conforms us into Christ in a painful but effective way. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, he says, in this salvation you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary that's an important word that means none of your trials are unnecessary if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ see these trials are like a refiner's fire that God sends the precious metal of faith through this fire and the fire burns away everything that isn't legitimate, everything that is lesser, everything that is impure. The fire burns it away and what is left results in the praise and honor and glory of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So suffering pushes us toward a certain hope, a hope of heaven, of resurrection, and eternal life. For the Christian, the sufferings of this fallen world are the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience. You can at least take comfort in that, that your sufferings on this earth, no matter how hard they get, are the closest thing to hell you'll ever experience. But to those who reject Christ, they are but a light foretaste. Of the hell of your eternity. So believer, these are lights and momentary afflictions in light of the glories of your future. And this leads us into the final point that the assurance, there's assurance of God's love through it all. The word hope is used many times in this passage. It's one of the, the, the key Christian virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love are the good things he gave us, but the greatest is love," says the great theologian, Alan Jackson. Hope, elpis in the Greek, is more than wishing. All right, we use the word hope, like I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope I win the lottery, right? But this type of hope that Paul's talking about here is more than wishing. It's not saying we wish for the glory of God. No, it is a confident anticipation and expectation. A confident anticipation and expectation. Like, I have hope that the sun will rise tomorrow. Why? Because it has proven itself that it will rise tomorrow. I have a confident anticipation and expectation. I'm not just wishing that the sun would rise or just kinda rolling the dice. No, I have hope that it will rise. Hope in the glory of God and His work of redemption will not put you to shame, is where Paul goes with this. Look at that, um, verse number, where are we at, five. Hope does not put us to shame, why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope in the glory of God and His work of of redemption will not put you to shame. And this goes back to what we talked about er earlier. Why won't it put you to shame? because it is the certain end of history. It is more sure than the sun coming up tomorrow. You get that. That worldwide dominion of Christ in which the knowledge of the glory of God covers this earth like the waters cover the sea is more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. And so when you place your hope in that event of history, you will not be put to shame. But if you put your hope in false gods, you will surely be put to shame. Hope and false gods will put you to shame. If you put your hope in some future version of yourself, you will be put to shame. I am not anywhere near the virtuous guy I wanted to be a couple years ago. I, I probably am more virtuous than I wanted to be 10 years ago. That's God's grace. <laughs> but I can imagine 10 years from now, I won't be as far as I hope I am today. You see what I'm saying? We put our hope in our future self, we will be put to shame. And you know this, right? How many times have you told yourself, I'm going to start studying? <laughs> right? You've told yourself, and then your future self fails you. Right? You can put no confidence in yourself. So yourself makes a lousy God. It will put you to shame. Other people will put you to shame. If you put your hope in other people, in your girlfriend or your boyfriend, he's going to complete you. He's going to set you off on the right path. You're going to marry this dude and you're going to turn out. What did Paul Tripp say? When you get married, people come in and the wife says, he's not the man that I married. He's like, no, he is the man that you married. It's The guy that you were dating was a fraud. right?" If you put your hope that this person is perfect for me, they're going to turn out to be just as bad of a God as you are. You see, marriage is not a fix for your eternal future. <laughs> marriage is a a tool that God uses to press you into that hope of glory. Right? Other people, horrible gods, they will put you to shame. This includes political figures, right we've all had guys that we thought were gonna be the ones and turns out that they're sellouts like the rest of them right Christless ideologies will put you to shame social justice how many of us have tweeted the hashtag or been the first on social media to say something about an event that's happening in the news to turn out that we look like fools because some new information came out that we didn't know about or that the whole organization was crooked. Social justice, Christless social justice will put you to shame. Activism of LBGTQ plus alphabet soup crew identifying with any Christless um, ideology will put you to shame. Here's one that Christians need to hear. Christless conservatism will put you to shame anything, the key there is Christless. There's no hope there, there is no future. The future is all the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so therefore, hope in Christ is the only certain hope of glory. And God designed it that way. But here's the thing, here's the thing, it's not a trade, it's not a trade. So don't hear me saying the only thing that matters then is Christ, then that means none of this other stuff matters. Right? No. The whole world being filled with the knowledge of the glory of God includes this place where we're standing right now. This university matters because it's God's. Right? Even though this university rebels against its creator in many ways. But their time is ticking. Why? Because the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill this earth like the waters cover the sea. It is a certain future, and 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 maybe He wants a handful of, you know, crazy. I'm not gonna say bad. This. I don't know if we're all bad. This, but crazy college students to say Jesus is Lord, and He will have dominion. And so let's go. Maybe that is what God is doing to bring about his purposes so see you can you can say let's go and know that you're stepping out on sheer ground right we can look at the overwhelming task that God has given us I just got back from Knoxville Tennessee I'm not a city person I don't go to the city very often and we got from the city I was like whoa we got a lot more work than I thought I thought Valdosta was bad whoa we got some work to do but when Christ calls us to this work, He's not asking us to step out in the shaky, unknowable grounds. He's calling us to step out into the only certain future. and So we can be confident that God will not leave us hanging. How, how many of you fear that if you step out in obedience to God, that He will leave you hanging? I know you would never say that, <laughs> but maybe Elijah would say that. <laughs> but often we do. Right? Oh, God's going to leave me out to dry. And I'm going to look like a fool. That's the opposite of what the Bible says. That this hope in Christ will not put you to shame. Everything else will. We can be confident God won't leave us hanging. Why? Because He has poured His love into our hearts. See? He goes back to redemption. He goes back to redemption. He's poured His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee of our future redemption, right? I'm sure some of you have student loans and you signed some paperwork that said that you're gonna pay this off until Biden got elected, right? You signed a seal or a promise that something in the future was going to happen. God has given us many promises a promise of the redemption of all things, and He has given us a signature, He's given us a seal and a guarantee, a down payment of that inheritance, and that is the Holy Spirit. That is the new birth. (laughs) Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So God has given us a down payment that he's promising us that he will not leave us hanging, that he will complete what he has promised, that he will give us what he has promised. So as we close, if you want assurance of God's love, if you want to know that you can have a peace in every circumstance, you must be born again. You must possess that down payment. You didn't get that money for your student loan until you signed that document. You must be born again. <laughs> you can't just say that you're a Christian and not live by the Spirit and have this assurance of God's love. You, you, you can't be like uh, an affirming Christian who affirms everything but what the Spirit has said in His Word regarding sin and repentance you must be born again. There must be new birth, confession, repentance, and bearing fruit of the Spirit. Listen to this, Galatians 5, 19 through 24. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the Kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." So. What do we do with this? What are the application of this text, if you will? First, to the non-Christian, it is this. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. Confess him with your mouth and be saved. Put your hope in Christ. That is the only way anything that i said tonight can be true of you, is if you're in Christ. Secondly, to the Christian. First, all of life is lived Coram Deo, before the face of God, both in times of ease and turmoil. God has not forgotten you. God knows very well what you're going through. In fact, he sent it for your good. Secondly, know your God in times of peace so that you'll recognize him through the clouds of sorrow. I'm going to say that again. Know your God in times of peace so that you'll recognize him through the clouds of sorrow. What I mean by that, study your Bible. Study your God. Know him while times are good so that you will know what to expect when times get dark. When you can't see his face but you know he's there. Do that now. Number three, when God sends you tribulations, Whether in the form of persecution or natural evil, rejoice that you get to identify with the sufferings of your Savior. And finally, live life with an unshakable joy and confidence in God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God in every circumstance. This is good news. Let's pray and give God thanks. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather in this place in peace, proclaim your gospel, proclaim your truth, proclaim your lordship. We pray that this word goes out and goes forth with power as you grant it in Jesus' name, amen.